Welcome to the Tactics Meeting. I'm your host, Dan Smiley. And here on the program, we talk to subject matter experts about response tactics and technology. At the Washington State Maritime Cooperative Seminar two weeks ago, the Department of Ecology's own Matt Bissell gave a presentation about regulatory compliance in Washington and the state of uh, kind of additional uh, regulatory efforts within the state. So for today's episode, we're going to play you that presentation in its entirety. I hope you enjoy it. Before we get started, I want to let you know about our ICS 300 class that's taking place next week, Tuesday, Wednesday, Thursday, the 8th, 9th, and 10th of November at the Clean Rivers Cooperative Facility in Portland, Oregon. We have a few seats left. They're $425 per person. Uh, Gallagher Marine Systems own Randy Ashmore, who's a well-known trainer, FEMA trainer, is going to be giving the class. I'll be assisting him. This is a great opportunity to take an oil spill response-based version of ICS 300. If you're interested, you have the time. I highly recommend it. You can register on the Clean Rivers Cooperative website. It's cleanriverscooperative.com backslash training. Hope to see you there. Okay, so uh, good morning, everyone. Um, I actually wrote out some notes uh, to read so I could would sound a little bit more eloquent this morning. I can't see my notes, so I'm just going to kind of wing this. Um, so I hope I hit everything that I actually wrote down and, and meant to say. Um, Carlos Clements, he's our new program director. He sends his uh, regards and his regrets that he couldn't make it today. He's actually at another annual uh, meeting in D.C. this week for uh, for API. So it's a good day for annual meetings and just kind of competing priorities. But he does uh, wish he could have could have been here. Um, yeah, so Dan asked me a couple weeks ago to, um, you know, to come talk about what's what's new and what to, what we can look forward to in terms of uh, state regulations and kind of the political climate uh, in our state. And so I put together a list of uh, some recent um, rules that have been uh, implemented, some things that are currently being uh, written, some current rulemaking um, that's very fresh, and then a couple of rulemakings that haven't been uh, yet announced but are coming down, coming down the pipeline here soon. So I'll give you guys kind of a, a heads up on what to expect there. Uh, before we get into the legislative uh, part of this talk, I just wanted to give you guys a quick overview of our program and um, kind of give you a little tour and introduction of um, or refresher of who we are and, and what we do. This is our most uh, up-to-date organizational chart. We're about uh, 80 people strong. And up there on the top, you've got uh, our new program director. That's Carlos Clements. Uh, he comes to us after a career in the uh, United States Air Force. Um, and if you guys remember Dale Jensen, he retired and um, this is Dale's replacement, is Carlos up top. And Carlos is supported by um, his administrative staff up there on the top line, as well as the uh, the four different sections within our program. All the way over there to the left, uh, you guys might know um, Brian Kirk. He's the uh, program or the section manager for our prevention section. And then all the way or to the left, sorry. And then all the way over to the right, you've got Dave Byers, who is one of our state on-scene coordinators. And he's a uh, uh, the section manager for the response program. There in the middle, the, uh, preparedness. That's um, my team. I'm the acting preparedness section manager, uh, taking over for Linda Pilkey Jarvis. If you guys worked with her in the past, she just retired um, this last June. And then to the left of preparedness is Nee Irwin, who I'm sure you guys all uh, know her name or have worked with her in, in spills or drills. And she's the section manager for the statewide resources uh, section. And that's the section that does a lot of um, cross-sectional collaboration with the other three sections, kind of the glue that keeps um, the whole program together. Um, so our goal, you know, all of those sections work together to, you know, towards a common goal of zero spills in Washington, prevention being kind of, you know, 
our way that we we strive towards that goal. Um, but spills do happen in Washington. I, in my notes, I had some more statistics that I don't really remember, but I think it's about 20 billion gallons of oil are transported through our state each year. Um, and so while we strive for zero spills, I kind of, uh, the analogy I think about is, you know, we can all walk around the block with a cup of coffee with the goal of not spilling that cup of coffee. Pretty simple. But if you've got two cups of coffee and you're walking around the block continuously 24 hours a day, um, things can happen. Um, you can get tired. Uh, you can stop to chat with your neighbor. A dog can attack you. Um, there's just ran random things that could happen that make you spill that coffee. You set it down, soccer ball knocks it over. Um, so oil spills do happen. So beyond prevention, our second goal is to make sure that we're prepared to respond to spills and that we do so in a, in a rapid, aggressive, and well-coordinated manner. And this just shows uh, kind of our playing field. Um, this is These are all the places that uh, oil is moved and um, stored throughout the state. And state legislature kind of directs us to focus our activities, our prevention, preparedness, and response activities um, to focus those on the main um, processors and transporters of oil, as well as the big vessels that are using oil as, um, as a fuel source to, uh, to move their vessels. So I'm gonna quickly uh, talk about the, uh, the three sections that I always leave uh, statewide resources out of um, the mix in these slides just because their work is more administrative in nature and um, you know not very uh, exciting to to explain to external audiences but um, prevention you know that's our number one focus uh, to prevent spills from from happening in the in the first place um, and so we carry that out through uh, vessel screenings and inspections voluntary compliance uh, for tank vessels facility inspection, plan reviews, um, oil transfer inspections, oil transportation risk analyses, technical assistance, and incident investigations. And all of our, all of our folks in prevention uh, usually come to us after careers in the maritime field. So they're all experts. They've seen the processes, they've seen the operations, you know, throughout their careers. And they come to us with with all of that expertise, and they help the regulated community um, enhance their their prevention measures. The preparedness section um, that's the section uh, that I manage. We do a lot of uh, reviewing and approving of uh, in uh, industries contingency plans. So uh, you know, Wismix plan. We receive every five years and we look at it as if it's a brand new plan um, coming in for approval. So we have a, a plan manager assigned to that plan. They read it uh, word for word with you know the plan in one hand and the state uh, state rules and requirements in the other hand, and making sure that everything um, looks good and and is you know as strong as can be. We also do we test those plans through drills, and so the preparedness section uh, manages the state-run drill program. So we work really closely with Tim Lufer and the Coast Guard, and we test those plans uh, through through drills. And then this section also uh, works with the other uh, response community members in the Pacific Northwest to develop and maintain the geographic response plans. And so we don't do that alone. We do that with you know with everybody, but we house the databases and we um, kind of store all that information and facilitate facilitate all that work. And finally, uh, our response our response team. So Dave Byers and his team, um, they're ready to respond to any spill in the state um, 24 hours a day. They get called for about 9,000, they get about 9,000 spill reports per year and respond to over half of those. So about 4,300 they're actually responding to. Um, so quite a bit, you know, they're getting call, multiple calls a day throughout the state. They work with local, uh, first responders so they can respond quickly. Um, we also they also have a this section uh, manages our programs grant 
program. And so we also uh, look to local responders, tribes, um, and other uh, response partners to uh, get equipment grants out there so that we have, you know, the people who are going to be responding to spills before we can, that they have the equipment that they need to be able to uh, get things under control before we get there. We found that that's a really efficient way and an efficient um, or an effective use of our money is to get the first responders, you know, the best equipment they can. Um, so things are pretty well under control by the time we can arrive on scene. And our NERDA, the natural resource damage and assessment work is also run out of uh, the response, the response program. Okay, so that was just a, a quick overview of who we are um, and you know the the breakup and makeup of our our program. Now I'm going to talk about the uh, kind of a regulatory update, things that just uh, came through that we are all complying with right now, things that are currently being uh, written into rule, and I'll talk about a few um, a few future rulemaking efforts that are uh, soon to be announced. So Washington Administrative Code, uh, Chapter 173182, that's the, the chapter that deals with uh, oil spill contingency plans. Um, so when we're reviewing the WISMIC plan, that's the chapter that we're, you know, we're looking at to make sure that we're meeting every section in that chapter. Um, recently, so this year, January 18th of 2022, was the final phase-in um, of a two-year phase-in period of some very uh, major updates to this this uh, section of code. These are just a few of the items that uh, were updated. Um, there were a lot more that didn't make it on this, this slide, but these are the big ones. Um, Non-floating oils. So, you know, traditionally oil spill response has kind of focused on a product that stays on the surface of the ocean. Um, but through this update to this chapter, we are now looking at um, providing an or requiring an, ass an assessment within the first hour of a spill to determine if that product has the ability to leave the surface of the water, and if it does, you know how are we going to detect that? How are we going to map it? And how how are we going to respond to it? Um, marine mammal response—that's another one that uh, you know we have our southern resident killer whales. If there's a spill in this area, we just had one up in uh, the, um, the Aleutian Isle up in uh, Rosario Strait. Um, if a spill happens and it's the oil is uh, coinciding with potentially very endangered marine mammals, we needed to have a plan in place with how are we going to monitor the occurrence of whales, compare that to the occurrence of oil in the water, and if those two are going to um, coincide, how are we going to deter the whales away from from the oil. So the new plan requirements um, have, you, the new plans have information about people who you could call that have the expertise to identify whales, that the planes that they would be using to fly to, to observe them, um, and other resources and technologies that we can use to track whales, as well as the, uh, the resources that we could use to uh, deter whales from an oil spill. Spill management teams. Um, we talked about this a little bit this morning. Um, one of the first phase-ins of this two-year uh, period was the approval of spill management teams. And so now in contingency plans, the plan holders are citing state-approved contingency or state-approved spill management teams. And if you go onto our website, just you know, any ecology public-facing website, and if you go up into the uh, search bar in your top right and just type in spill management team it'll take you to our page that has the the most current list of state approved um, spill management teams and that's constantly changing anytime somebody submits an application it goes through a review process uh, sonia larson leads that team they review the uh, the application they work with them to become qualified and once they're qualified we list them on that that web page um, very similar process with wildlife service providers, same process. Um, a wildlife service provider submits an application. It goes to Sonia and her team. They review it. They approve it. And uh, same thing if you type in wildlife, uh, wildlife uh, response. I missed a word out of there. We're calling them WORSPs. 
Um, I don't know if they like that term or not, but um, WRSP, Wildlife Service, Wildlife Response Service Providers. Um, you know, you can find the the most updated list of who's um, who's state approved on our website. And then that last bullet, um, plan general content. So WAC 173-182-230, section six. That was a big one that I put for this audience. Um, this is the section that it just describes the general content that we should have in contingency plans, that we shall have in contingency plans. Um, but what it means for WISMIC is it's the information that you guys share with us in the Coast Guard regarding um, vessel type, vessel characteristics, the product, um, the worst case discharge volumes that are described uh, in an, with an enrolled vessel. Um, and this was updated to include more specific things that help us respond better, um, quicker. And some of those things, so before it was vessel name, vessel type, worst case discharge volume. Now we are ask, asking for and getting um, the API density of the densest product that that vessel is carrying. Um, we're getting, you guys probably know this better than I do. Um, we're getting the spill management teams, the QIs, the agents, um, the type of information that we need to not only assess the potential, uh, the maximum or the worst potential for that spill, but to make the connections with the people that we'd be working with in Unified Command uh, very quickly. Um, so thank you guys for uh, making that avail that information available. Thank you to the vessels for uh, you know submitting that information when they enroll and uh, to WISMIC for making that information available to the Coast Guard and, and to the state. Yep. Yeah. Yeah, okay. Yeah. So a question on the non-floating oils. The federal government has um, you know, OSROs and started a program for non-floating oil OSROs certified by the US government. Um, does the state have a similar process or do they just adopt the ones that the federal government is using? Yeah, that's a good question, Scott. Um, I would defer to Sonia. So I should have um, prefaced this by when I talk about a lot of this legislation, I'm not the subject matter expert on all of this stuff. For that one, I know when we when we are um, approving these plans, we do look to see if their PRCs have the capabilities to respond to non-floating oils, um, and some do and some don't. And so I think we're looking at the federal, federally approved PRCs that have those uh, those qualifications and capabilities. Um, and I, the question that I'm not certain is if when we approve a PRC, if part of that approval process is looking at their ability to respond to non-floating oils. That's where I would ask Sonia, but yeah. And, you know, before I move on, thanks for kind of back backtracking a bit, Scott. Um, it was really interesting this last year that, so, you know, going back to January, 2020, when all of this stuff was um, kind of announced, so the rulemaking was complete and we were phasing this in over a two year period. All of the plans were coming up to speed with these new rules and new requirements. And when I started working at Ecology in January of 2021, um, since then we've had two really interesting and complex um, incidents that really put to test the non-floating oils capabilities. We had a, uh, and the marine mammal uh, response capabilities um, out there. And so the non-floating oils one, I don't know if, if any of you guys are familiar with the the deep, not deep water, it's the deep river uh, derelict barge incident down on the deep river. It's a tributary to the Columbia River, just across from Astoria. It's about you know north north and east of Astoria, but not too far. There was no RP. It was a derelict barge. Um, it was a, a mystery sheen that got tracked back back to the barge. We found out that the barge was laden with this very heavy product. There was water on the surface. And when you stick a stick down through the water, there was a sludgy oil below the water. So it told us right there that it was a non-floating oil because we had water floating on top. And then we sent divers down and we found the, the barge was just riddled with holes. 
So we're thinking, okay, great. We have a heavy product in a barge and the barge has holes. So we worked with the Coast Guard um, sector Columbia River to remove the barge from the river, um, which was a pretty, pretty uh, interesting ordeal the way the Coast Guard kind of built this cradle you know, built this cradle around the barge, floated it down river to a, to a boat ramp, lifted it up with a crane, put it in a parking lot, um, and then used just a backhoe kind of, and, um, you know, the stuff wasn't sucking up. It wasn't a vacuum. It was too thick for a vacuum. Um, but anyways, long story short, once that uh, barge was gone, we knew that there was a high likelihood of um, non-floating oil down on the bottom of the river. So we made sample sampling plans. We were able to test a lot of the um, the capabilities that all of the contingency plans in Washington State had to start looking at two years ago. Um, we knew all these, you know, we were pulling out the processes in the plan, and we really got to put them to test. We got side side scan sonars out there. We got multi beam sonars out there. We were doing manual um, manual detections with various techniques um, to delineate and map out. The, the extent of the submerged oil. We found a bit of it down there, we mapped it out, and then we used divers to go down there with uh, vacuums and just suck up um, suck up the volume that, suck up the sunken oil that we were finding in the sediments. So that was a, a great test and a great kind of um, validation that that is an important addition and a, it's making all of our plans stronger, that NFO update. And then the one below that, the marine mammal response, um, you know, we knew it was a potential to have oil and southern resident killer whales in the same area. Um, and just recently, you know, this, in, you know, over the course of the last four, three to four months, um, we had the Aleutian Isle fishing vessel sink off of um, off of the islands. And, um, you know, within the first 12 hours, we had our um, multiple resources uh, out there trying to identify where the whales are. So we had underwater microphones, hydrophone networks with volunteers around the world listening for the sounds of orca and reporting those those sounds and then having experts validate if those were the southern residents or if they were the transients. Um, that information was feeding to the wildlife branch, getting into the response. And then at the same time, we were doing periodic overflights, comparing where the oil was to where the, the sounds of um, you know, the locations of oils or the locations of whales. And we weren't only using the sounds um, of the whales with the underwater microphones, um, but we were using uh, citizen science data with whale watchers out there reporting their observations of whales. Um, there were different apps that people were using to report their, their sightings of whales that then the experts would, you know, look at the pictures or get on scene to try to identify if they were transients or the the endangered southern residents. Um, and then at the same time, so that was our monitoring and reconnaissance effort. And then couple that with the the volunteer uh, vessels of opportunity that had Okumi pipes standing by around the island on the island um, with a two hour call out. So if, if, and so we have overflights for oil, we've got a whole system tracking these whales trying to understand where they are. If the oil and the whales coincided, we had a team of boats with pipes that they would then dangle into the water and bang the pipes in an orchestrated fashion directed by the wildlife branch um, to hopefully deter whales away from the oil. Again, something that uh, we started planning for, um, the plans were updated, and then it happened kind of a test and a, and a proof that you know this was a, a great addition to all of our plans. Um, current rulemaking. So this is very, very fresh. Um, just last night, we kind of wrapped up. Uh, I think it was due, due this morning. We kind of wrapped it up at six o'clock last night was the final proposed language for uh, chapter 173, 180 and 184. Um, so these are 180 is the facility oil handling standards chapter. Um, and what that update was, and so just to, before I go further, um, when I say we had the final language proposed last night, this is after about a year working with all of the different stakeholders and tribes um, and other response organizations, industry. Um, we put together what we are proposing as the new rule. Um, we had to submit that last night. 
And then in December of uh, this year, it'll be uh, released and then we'll have public hearings in January and February before it's actually adopted. Um, if everything goes well, um, it's scheduled to be in effect by July of 2023. And just kind of a, uh, an overview of what these are, uh, 173180, um, that from my perspective, from a, from a uh, pre uh, preparedness perspective, the main, is, the main uh, change there is that it brought what um, mobile facilities, the rules, the rules around mobile facilities were very much um, the federal regulations. And so the state regulations were just kind of citing the federal regulations. Now we're kind of mirroring and bringing in a lot of those already being complied with federal regulations into our state state regulations. But the biggest change that I'm going to see and that my team's going to see is that for federal or for uh, mobile facilities, those are trucks driving down and delivering fuel to a vessel. Um, we we now are going to have a state drill program for them, and so we'll phase them in like we do for most. Um, most rules will kind of we'll, we still have to haven't thought about the phase in approach to this, but we will be having a drill program for mobile facilities, which we don't have right now. And then for that top one two one eight oh, it did it it did have a lot more to do with our prevention team. So Brian Kirk and his team were really involved with this. Um, and so if you have any questions, I would hand you Brian Kirk's uh, business card if I had it. <laughs> but then that link down there on the bottom. Um, if you go to, and the easy way to go there too, is just go to any ecology outward facing website and just type in rulemaking. And if you want to get more specific, you could put rulemaking 173180 or rulemaking 173184, and it'll take you to the, the page that describes all the changes, um, the dates and the invitations to all the workshops, um, that are, that are to come. And then um, 184 was just some adding some more detail and some more clarification on the advance notice of transfer um, requirements. And then some upcoming rulemaking. These aren't these have not yet been officially announced, but these are pretty big um, and pretty important. Um, so the certificate of financial responsibility uh, program. We talked about it a little bit this morning. Um, there's a federal program, and a lot of the vessels already have certificates of financial responsibility. Um, we got authorization and, and direction and, I guess, mandated to uh, build and initiate a state-run program to certify the financial responsibility of vessels and facilities. Um, this is before my time, but apparently we tried this back in the 90s. And part of a rulemaking process for the state is to do a, an economic analysis to see if it's economically feasible or if it's overly burdensome uh, to business to implement a rule like this. And in the 90s, it was determined that it was it was not feasible. Um, but since then, there's more options to uh, to gain proof of financial um, responsibility, and uh, our two two of our bordering states on the west coast, um, not bordering, but California and Alaska, have both since the 90s have proven that it's a, a viable concept. They have program state-run programs of uh, financial responsibility, and so now it's our turn to kind of build up a program uh, mirroring the federal the federal program and California and Alaska's program, and hopefully learning a little bit from those programs and and maybe a uh, tweaking ours a little to to maybe make it better. Um, as far as a timeline on that uh, for the coffer program, we'll be announcing, officially announcing the beginning of rulemaking in spring of 2023 with, you know, and then going through the whole process um, of working with the stakeholders and, and everybody else who would be impacted by that rule with the, um, the goal of having that implemented by 2024, June of 2024. And then the uh, tug escort rule for Puget Sound. This is one that I really wish I was looking at my notes for. Um, <laughs> but uh, so I think it was House Bill 1578, 
eight or so, the last legislative session um, kind of described um, some new work regarding tug escorts for for all of Puget Sound and not just Rosario Strait. And so this would affect the same vessel types that currently have um, a few tug escort requirements. This would direct uh, ecology, but we aren't the primaries on this. We'd be working with the Board of Pilotage Commissioners to um, write a rule that covers a broader area um, to describe the um, the requirements for tug for large vessels of a certain type and size to have tug escorts um, in certain situations. Part of that uh, work was we were ecology was directed to come up with a model, a risk analysis model um, to help us to help inform that rule writing. And so where we are with that, we uh, built the model. Um, we had three three PhD kind of modeler science analysts, uh, scientists, analysts, uh, folks building this um, pretty incredible model that takes into account, you know, uh, the traffic scheme, the traffic traffic density, the different situations that a vessel could go through during its transit. For example, if it loses propulsion, um, you know, it'll you've got momentum, you've got drift, you've got certain uh, things that you could do. You could drop an anchor. Um, you, a tug could be, you know, where's the nearest tug? Um, it's just it's this really uh, dynamic model that we've built. It works. Uh, we don't have any uh, official analyses that we've run through it. So our next step is to use that model to create a report to the legislature that describes, um, that quantifies um, and, you know, describes the, the different scenarios that different tugs in different locations, um, how that would affect the our risk scenario in Washington waters. Um, so I think we have until uh, September of 2023 to produce that report, after which the Board of Pilotage Commissioners would work with us to uh, create the rulemaking for an expanded uh, requirement for tug escorts. I, economic analysis that goes with that? Yes. Yeah, the, uh, and the target vessels are yeah, that's the question. Yeah, it's uh, uh, it's based on the size and the 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 weight of the vessel. Um, if I had my notes, I don't even know if I had those details in my notes, but it's all in the um the House Bill, I think fifteen seventy eight, and this is another one that if any of you guys are interested, I would hand you Brian Kirk's virtual business card. If you want to write down Brian Kirk at ecy um, he is a uh, you know, this one's in more of in his wheelhouse or is completely in his wheelhouse. And Matt, do you know if that's uh, the Nia Bay question versus Port Angeles? Yeah, so it wouldn't take it wouldn't take a vessel away from from Nia Bay. It would be um, recommending other locations that escort tugs could be staged. But that's that's been a that's been a big question that I've gotten in the past and um, talking to Brian and Dave and, and me and the rest of our team, um, you know, that will not impact the location of the Nia Bay tug. Yeah, the question I think is, is um, the escort rule going to have escorts picking up at Nia Bay area? Is that? Uh, say it again. I don't know if I'm following. So this isn't, this isn't, res this isn't the rescue tug rule, but it's the tug escort rule. Tug escort rule. So right. do you know the, the new locations where the tug escorts would be proposed. I I don't know, Scott. Okay, yeah. that's that's. Yeah, yeah Karen. Sorry. Yeah, so Karen's question was, uh, is Canada participating and are, are some of the locations that they're looking at north of the border? Um, and that's another question that I cannot answer. <laughs> Sorry. Um, but I do rec I do recommend, uh, you know, this this is a big one for this audience. And if you guys do have questions, Brian Kirk is the, the man to talk to you for this.
So have you guys talked about tugs of opportunity in addition to uh, dedicated tugs? Yeah, so tugs of opportunity are part of the model. And so, you know, when a situation occurs, they do look at the likelihood that a, a tug, where are the tugs out there that could be used uh, as a call out of opportunity? Um, and that is, yeah, that is one of the parameters that they, they, when you look at this model and you hear them talk about everything that they thought of, um, it's incredibly comprehensive and um, yeah, it's a pretty, pretty impressive model and, and that is included. Dave, Dave, you had a question? Yeah, this is Dave Swicky. Two questions, one related to WISMIC and one not. First one, if you look back at last couple of years and after every exercise or response, we usually do what we call a hot wash. And uh, one of the categories of that hot wash is opportunities for improvements. Do you see any big or glaring opportunities for improvements in your last in the last couple of years in response? Where are the yeah, holes? I, yeah, no. I mean, if I said no, I, I you know, I, that I'd be lying because um, there's always room for improvement. As far as specifics, um, I know you know the the Northwest Area Committee uh, summit is happening this this December, and we. We do have our list of things that we're um, we're proposing to focus on in 2023, um, and that's based off of you know things you know that have occurred in the last couple of years um, at drills or in real spills. Um, you know, just off the top of my head, I would say some of the things that I've noticed are, um, and this is not from drills, but from from actual spills, is just that the, the sharing of communication or sharing of information, sharing of overflight information. Um, I feel like, uh, yeah, Dave, I don't, I don't know if I'm getting it, getting it, your, uh, your question very well, but. Um, no, I, th I think that's fine. What we're always interested on the response side is being very open and honest about where we're good and where we aren't good. And if there is some, uh, to use the old phrase, low hanging fruit or things that are really critical that we're just ignoring or missing, that's important to us. So appreciate your response to that. Second question, not related to WISMIC so much, but just regulations and upcoming rulemaking. What's going on in the rail transfer side of the oil transfer in the state? Training drills, responses, et cetera. Yeah. So, um the the rail industry is you know they're I, I feel like now more than ever they've their plans um, are really well aligned with with you know the vessel plans and the facility plans I feel like a lot of the regulations that and pipelines I put pipelines in the same uh, same category where you know we actually took some of the uh, stuff from pipelines the community air monitoring um, requirements that pipelines had. Now all now all plans are um, kind of utilizing and and are required to have that level of detail regarding community air monitoring. Um, but I feel like the the rail uh, group um, we've got our three types: we are type A, type B, and type C. I feel like they're all um, they're all doing really well. Their plans are strong. They're doing really well in, in the drills. Um, the type C's are, you know, we're starting the the drill programs with them, and, um, you know, just like anything, when you're starting off uh, new, you know, we're kind of just taking taking baby steps and um, kind of walking them through through kind of what what it means to be in a, a triennial drill cycle and how to do a worst case discharge drill. But um, yeah, I've been really really impressed with all the drills, and that getting back to your first uh, question, Dave, about you know, what have we noticed? I feel like we do, through our evaluations of drills, um, we do try to nip anything in the bud uh, in our evaluation and, you know, give the plan holder 30 days, 90 days to kind of fix what what we noticed in a drill. 
Um, and so I don't think, I think just through our process that you guys are all involved with, with us, I feel like nothing is ever outstanding and a glaring problem. I feel like we, through our drills, we kind of prove that our plans are really strong. And if there are any, you know, minor tweaks, we get them fixed uh, in a pretty, pretty fast manner. Thanks for your time. Yeah, thank you, Dave. Okay. Um, oh yeah, and then the last uh, last bullet on here is our next legislative session uh, starts this uh, this January, January of 2023. Um, sometimes we propose uh, new policies. Um, sometimes we just get told, you know, that we are affected by by new policies. And so this year uh, or this legislative session, we are not proposing any new changes. Um, that doesn't mean that external um, lobbying or, or influences will, uh, you know, will create policy changes that affect our program. But we don't even we, we won't know that until the legislative session starts in January. And we kind of just keep our ears opened every day that that session is open. I think it's a 90 90 day session. Uh, this one is a longer session. Um, and so we have our uh, legislative analysts kind of tuned into that and keep it in the eye and ear open for anything that could impact our program. Um, but we don't have anything uh, in the hopper or, or that we're trying to push through at all at this point. Okay, so um, that was it for the legislative update. Any other questions? You, know, you guys kind of got them as we we're going. Tim. Just transiting through the AOR. I would, I would, I'm gonna refer you to Brian Kirk, but I would, my guess is yes, yeah. Um, but again, I, I really would like all those specific uh, questions to go to Brian if, uh, if you guys really are interested. Uh, mine was just about the density. So would we, we'd be get asking the captains to have that on the field document. So we're getting that when we're talking about color and size and you're expecting to hear about density when we make that first contact or Before. are we constantly monitoring it for any change in density? Yeah, so that's a really good question. And I couldn't actually see the details of the enrollment form, but the density, the API gravity is something that we would be looking for on your website, on the WISMIC website list. So along with the vessel name, the vessel type, um, we would look, we would also be looking for the, um, the worst case discharge volume of that vessel, the densest product that that vessel carries and its API gravity of that product, the QI, the agent, um, the spill management team. And I think that's it. Yeah. And that's, you know, that new requirement is something that we're still working the kinks out of with all of the um, multi-vessel plan holders. You guys all have your websites that we have access to that we can check that information. So if a spill happened, um, you know, we could go into the, the website and see, okay, we know it's this vessel. We know this is their worst case volume. We know that they potentially could have a, a, a product that could potentially be a non-floating oil. These are the contacts that we need to, you know, be thinking of. This, this is their spill management team. This is QI agent and so forth. When I say we're working out the kinks, um, I think, you know, you guys have, I don't know how many hundreds or thousands, I'm not sure, vessels on your list. Um, and because this is a new rule, not every vessel has that information available today on that list. So I imagine just over time, as you guys are getting new enrollments, you're asking for that information, and that information will slowly be populating on the list. Right, so anytime new information is required like this, we roll out a new schedule of vessel information, um, and then we send that out to vessels that we know are going to arrive and for them to fill out so that we have a complete and accurate information on okay. the vessel. Cool, that makes sense. Okay, uh, the last two things I wanted to show you guys, um, and I'm sorry, I didn't get your name, sir, back there. Yeah, Jason. Cool. Uh, Chaitin was asking about 
you know, a checklist or descriptions of scenarios um, that you might, uh, you know, that could be made available to the captain, to the crew, um, so they know what their re uh, reporting requirements are. Um, and so not this one, but the next one I'll show you is the vessel emergency um, list of, it describes everything that uh, Dan actually went through this morning, but it's a two-page document that you could give to your crew um, to study. And I'd be interested to talk to you and, and others to see what languages we should be uh, producing these in. Right now they're just in English, but I don't see any, we have a ecology in the state has kind of an accessibility team that can translate these documents into any language. So I think that's, an, that's I took the note down. It's, um, I think we're gonna start making these in, in multiple languages. Um, but this one just describes uh, a vessel's responsibility to to have a contingency plan. Dan talked about some of the fines you can accrue if you come into state waters without a plan. Um, Hundred thousand dollars a day uh, for every day you don't have a plan. So make sure you do have a plan. We have a team who's monitoring, um, and we've kind of automated this system to where if AIS has your itinerary coming into Washington state waters. We also are monitoring, we're comparing that data with the um, the various multi-vessel plan holders enrollment data. If you're scheduled to come into state waters and you don't, and you're not showing up on WISMIC um, or any of the other multi-vessel contingency plans uh, list, it'll send us, it'll send our team an email. And that's when our team, uh, it's a strong team of two, um, they start tracking things down and making sure they'll call WISMIC um, and say, hey, are you guys sure this vessel isn't enrolled? And WISMIC might say, oh, they just sent their paperwork in, um, they're good, and then we we drop it. Or WISMIC might say, um, no, we don't know anything about these guys. Um, let's keep looking into it. So then we'll call their, their agent, their QI, um, and really try to get these guys to fill out the paperwork, get enrolled before they actually cross the, the you know, state water into state waters and then that's when those letters that uh, dan was talking about start going out if you come into state waters without a plan um it's kind of a big deal we actually ramped it up from just a, a warning letter to now it's an automatic notice of violation still not a penalty um, but it's got a little bit more teeth uh, in that notice in nov a notice of violation um, and that's something that if you don't comply with the orders that are in the notes of violation, it can go directly to a penalty. Um, but usually when we send out that notice of violation, it's not a penalty and it comes attached with this PDF document that you know really helps you understand your requirements to have plan coverage in the state. Um, and the reminder that it's $100,000 a day uh, if you don't get coverage. The worst is when you uh, get through, and by the time you get through to the the vessel operator, they're sending in their paperwork at the same time that they're headed back across the Pacific. Um, so it's um, we like to catch them before before they enter interstate waters. And this one, uh, so vessel notifications for threat of oil spills. And this is the one I think that talks uh, a little bit closer to what you were talking about. Um, this describes the different situations that a vessel might experience that would um, cause you to need to make a required notification. Dan went through the list earlier, you know, vessel fire, loss of propulsion, groundings and so forth. Um, but this describes those in a little bit more detail, and then it tells you what you need to do and who you need to call. And again, I'd, I'd love to put these into whatever language they'd be most most effective. Um, and one little kind of side note on this, um, before I was working for the state as a regulator, I was on a ship. We were coming in through uh, the Strait of Juan de Fuca. We had a complete loss of power, loss of propulsion. The bridge went dark. We we're, you know, Hard, rudders went hard to starboard. We were doing a big donut outside of the, the inbound shipping lane. Um, and it was a 230 foot vessel. Um, we got the, you know, we got things back under control within, you know, it felt like a long time. It was probably within 40 seconds. You know, we got things back online and we just got back on our track um, and went home, didn't call anybody, didn't do anything. And I didn't think anything of it um, until I started working for NOAA first and then you know the Department of Ecology and got into the spill 
oil spill preparedness world and really understood that, you know, it's not that, um, you know, that phone call after we made that donut, um, if we had made a phone call to the people who would be responding to that, it's kind of just a heads up saying, hey, we had something that went wrong. It could happen again in five minutes. There's more of a likelihood that it's going to happen in five minutes because it just happened. We don't know what just happened, but something happened. So just giving you guys a heads up and it lets everyone who would be uh, responsible for responding um, to start thinking about you know, their preparedness levels. They would monitor uh, your route to make sure you got back to, to port safely. We do the same thing when the Coast Guard gives us um, captain of the port orders. It's just a we go on high alert and we just watch and monitor and make sure that you get to where you need to be going and you make the repairs that, that you need. Um, so it's not like a, a, it's not a check against you. It's not a bad mark. It's, it's actually a really good thing um, for you guys to call us. It's, you're probably going to get a kudos letter in the mail um, if you make the call. Oh, and then just, uh, I don't know if you're going to share these slides, Dan, with anybody, but these are the links to our publications page where you can actually go and download uh, both of these, these documents. And that's it. Um, I really thank you guys for the opportunity to speak with you guys today. And um, if you guys have any questions, uh, you can reach out to me and I'll put you in contact with the right people within our organization. And um, yeah, just looking forward to working with you all in the future. Well, thank you for joining me for the tactics meeting. Another episode is in the can. Next week, Cheryl Surface is going to be joining me again and we'll be doing the third episode of our journey around the planning P, we'll be doing the Unified Command Objectives meeting. So that's going to be great. She's the best in the world. I get to work with her in a drill. Uh, coming up here for Transmontane on November 17th. So yay. If you guys have any ideas for a podcast episode, you want to be a guest, you have a topic you'd like us to address, then you can email me. The email address is podcast at the tacticsmeeting.online or just give me a phone call. You can reach me at 206 495 3805.